you to remain standing, our scripture reading comes this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 33 through 42. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except a sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. And if you turn your attention to the screen, there's an illustration um, of this morning's scripture passage. Thousands of years after the incredible events surrounding Jonah and Nineveh, God sent his son into the world. Jesus, who often referred to the great stories of the Old Testament to share their deeper meaning, used the story of Jonah as a way of explaining something amazing that would happen in his own life. One day, Jesus was teaching when some Pharisees and teachers of religious law responded to Jesus' lesson by making a simple request. Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. They thought that for someone who said he was the Son of God, such a thing would be an easy task. Jesus, who had shown his authority and power over and over again by performing miracles meant to help people, not just give evidence to doubters, rejected their request, saying, only an evil, unfaithful generation would demand a miraculous sign. The only sign I will give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. To make sure that everyone understood what he meant, he reminded them of part of Jonah's epic story, saying, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent, Jesus said. Jesus went on to preach, The Queen of Sheba will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
You stand before someone now who is far wiser than Solomon, but still you refuse to listen. Jesus' message to the Pharisees and teachers of religious law was clear. They were too stubborn in their mission to find fault in Jesus to see the many faults in their own lives. Trying to prove that they were right stopped them from acknowledging their need to repent and find purpose and a new and everlasting life in their Savior. with you all this morning as we are gathered to worship God together. Over the past four weeks, we've spent time looking through the Old Testament story of Jonah. Jonah, as you all know, was a prophet who was called by God to go to the city of Nineveh in order to offer that city the opportunity to repent. And we all know the story that as Jonah heard the call from God, he decided that the Ninevites were not worthy of this message or opportunity for repentance. And so Jonah decides to go somewhere else. He decides that he does not want to take them the message. He does not want the Ninevites to hear this message. And so he leaves and he goes to Tarshish and he does so because the Ninevites were the Assyrians and the Assyrians are the people who conquered the nation of Israel and also worshiped pagan gods. Now Jonah's reasoning for doing what he did, I think in some ways is a little bit logical because he knew God to be all compassionate, he knew God to be all loving, to be full of mercy and faithful, and Jonah knew from his own experience and from what he knew as a man of Israel that God was all of those things and then when given the opportunity to demonstrate those things, God would always choose to demonstrate his compassion and his love and his mercy and his faithfulness to those who repented and turned to him. And so basically Jonah knew that if Nineveh repented, he knew that God was going to be good to them. And he didn't want that to happen, right? He knew that God would extend to them all of the things that he himself had experienced of God. And so we all know the story of Jonah. We all know that once he finally arrived at that city, they heard his invitation to repentance, and we all know what happened from there. But this morning, I want us to step back to the first week of this sermon series where we looked at the story of Jonah and where we thought about its origin and a little bit about its history. I know that week I mentioned that there are some who believe that the story of Jonah is myth or they just compare it to a parable that Jesus told. For some, reading the story of Jonah is hard to believe because there's really not factual evidence. There's not any physical evidence that provides something tangible for them to look at or to see. There are no skeletal remains of a great beast from the ocean. And so those who doubt the story of Jonah do so on a lack of science-based evidence to give them the factual proof that this story is true. Without being overly critical of them, I can say that, I mean, I do get that. I understand that. We definitely want as much evidence as possible. And I'm certainly excited whenever I see um, archaeologists in Israel uncover something that that lends a, a factual proof or evidence to some biblical narrative from the Old Testament or even the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and what we know and read about in the Bible. But I stop at discounting the Bible on things that we might consider lack of evidence. 
Because here's where I stand on the story of Jonah, and I believe that I find where Jonah is important strictly on the words of Jesus. I believe the story is true because we have faith and we have belief and we have trust that the Holy Spirit, having crafted the words of the Old and New Testament, then transmitted and gave them to us. I believe that this story is true not on some physical evidence, but on the words of Jesus himself. Jesus, who's fully God, who's fully human, who is the incarnation, who turned to the story of Jonah as he spoke to those who were opposed to him. Here's the thing. I don't think Jesus would have used anything that he considered false or knew to be false in, as an example as he faced his opponents. I don't think Jesus, I, I, he, there's no way in my mind that he would do that. I can't see Jesus, who we know is, is the Word made flesh, using things that he knows knew as false in order to try and get those who opposed him to believe. There's no way he would have done that. Jesus who is good, Jesus who is loving, Jesus who, who called and invited the people of God into a relationship with God that they could never imagine for themselves. I think we have to remember that in every act, interaction that Jesus had, even with those who opposed them, even with those that opposed him, Jesus' purpose was always to invite everyone that he was speaking to into the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought about Jesus' message in that way? Where even when he faced those that were his opposition, even where he faced those that were challenging him and that were questioning him and that uh, were, were believe, those that, that believed that his message was false or wrong or misleading, even when Jesus confronted those people, he still invited them into God's kingdom. And so he never taught them in an attempt to, to prevent them from discovering who he was as the Messiah. Because for Jesus, everything that he said, everything that he did, pointed others who were listening to him, their eyes, to him being the Messiah and to the invitation that they had in being a part of the kingdom of God. So for me, as I read this story, there's absolutely no way that Jesus would have used something he knew to be untrue as an invitation for others to believe in him as the Messiah. Why would he do that? He doesn't need anything faulty. Jesus doesn't need anything untrue. Jesus doesn't need anything even remotely false, remotely untrue, remotely anything. Because if he's truly all-knowing and all-compassionate, the way we read about him in the Bible, if he is uh, the one who gave himself, if he is everything that Jonah knew of God and every word he speaks is truth, then Jesus doesn't need to artificially prop up the truth of God, just as we don't need to artificially prop up the resurrection of Jesus. We have the truth, don't we? And that's what we receive in the gospel, and that's what we receive in the letters of Paul and the other letters in the New Testament, and that's what brings it all together, even as we read the Old Testament, and we see that the Old Testament and the entire Bible itself is the story of God and his message, and his relationship with us, his people. See, I don't think Jesus needs to prop up anything. Because every word that he says is truth, right? 
Every word that he says is the word of God. And that's why I believe he used the story of Jonah. When he was in discussion with the Pharisees, when he was talking to the teachers of the law, and so let's take a minute and turn to the gospel. So this morning we're looking at the gospel of uh, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus uses the story of Jonah to invite the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to hear this invitation to his kingdom. To set the stage for this passage of Scripture, so I want to first summarize where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew, and I also want to remind you that, that the chapter headings that we read in our Bible, they weren't there originally, right? And so if we're reading it, some of the chapter headings or the separations or the breaks that, that modern editors have put in our Scriptures, those were not there when Jesus spoke them or when Matthew wrote this Gospel down or when Mark or Luke or John crafted their Gospels. And so in some places they make sense and then in some places they don't because they, they provide an, an artificial break in what, something that Jesus was saying that really is a big continuous passage. And so this morning, Scripture is kind of that way, because we read uh, from Matthew chapter 12, you know, at the uh, verse uh, 33 we started, and then there was a break in the middle in my Bible where it transitions to Jesus and Jonah. And so in my mind, when I look at it, visually it makes me think there's a break, but really we have to read it and go, no, no, this is Jesus talking a, a continuous teaching. Does that make sense? And so Jesus in this passage of Scripture has, uh, has been walking with the disciples, He's being accused of, of breaking the Sabbath. He's allowed the disciples to pick and eat the kernels of wheat as they walked along the road. He later encounters a man in the synagogue who has a malformed hand or shriveled hand, depending on your translation. After questioning the Pharisees if it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, Jesus then tells the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and immediately his hand was restored. And after watching this miracle, in the Matthew's gospel, this is a turning point. This is a point where the Pharisees went from uh, just imposing Jesus to where they are now actively pursuing to, to cause harm to Jesus. And so the end of this passage says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Finally, this man who is possessed is brought to Jesus. He is possessed by a demon, and Jesus calls out the demon, and he casts it out. And then he's accused of being a servant of the evil one by the Pharisees, which leads to our scripture this morning. And in their interaction, Jesus responds by asking the Pharisees how they judge the quality or health of a fruit tree. Do they judge the fruit tree on its own merits and how it looks? Or do they judge the fruit tree based on the quality of the fruit it produces? You know, we've all been in some orchards or seen fruit trees that really don't look very pretty, do they? But some of the fruit they produce is some of the best. And then Jesus compares the fruit of a person of faith with the outcome of one's actions in the name of God. So basically, he wants them to, to get to thinking about what kind of fruit people are bearing versus what kind of, of fruit do they give the impression that they're going to bear. How do they look? How are they living? What are they giving on the outside? And then he asks the Pharisees this. How can they accuse him of being a servant of the evil one or Beelzebub for casting out demons? And then he says, well, then who are you serving when you pray to cast out demons? And so basically he's saying, if your accusation against me stands, shouldn't you also be considered a servant of the evil one if you're praying to cast out demons as well? I mean, this is like, 
Jesus is going pretty heavy on them. And so he turns their accusation against him. He's saying, if I heal in the name of God and you claim to heal in the name of God, we both are claiming to heal in the name of the same God. And why am I being accused of being evil while you're not? And he points out the ridiculousness of their actions. But here's the important part that I think we want to remember and we want to cling to as we read this passage and as we think about it through this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Friends, if you look at it, even as Jesus confronts them in their accusations, he still offers them an opportunity to to become a part of what he's offering. Even as Jesus is facing this opposition from these Pharisees and teachers of the law who are conspiring against him, even as they are plotting how they might kill them, Jesus still desires for each of them to have the opportunity to hear the message of God's kingdom that he is bringing and he's offering to them. And so even as they're directing their anger at them, Jesus still desires for them to have the opportunity to repent and to hear the message of God's grace and to receive the invitation of God's kingdom that he's bringing. I mean, isn't that grace? I mean, that's Jesus. He's not facing this opposition and writing these people off and saying, you're never going to get it. Now, he confronts them and he uh, discusses whatever it is that they're accusing him of and, and presents, you know, his argument for why they're wrong. But at the same time, he's offering them the invitation. And this is exactly why Jesus turns to the story of Jonah in this morning's scripture where he's confronted by the Pharisees and he's confronted by these teachers of the law when they say, give us a sign. We want to see a sign. They want to see something miraculous at their command that Jesus is going to provide for them to see. They make this request without the commitment. You'll notice, did they say, give us a sign and we'll believe? Not at all, right? They just said, give us a sign. So they're not committing themselves to if Jesus provides them a sign, they're going to start believing or following or listening to him in a different way. They just want to see. They want to see without having to discern for themselves who Jesus is. They want the full benefit of Jesus' ministry without having to take the time for themselves to discern and to pray and to study and to worship and really to decide who Jesus is and what Jesus is offering each of them individually. I mean, do you see what they're doing? They're asking for the answers of the test without having put in the time and the work themselves. They want the information and the knowledge without actually having to study the material. They're asking for the the end of the book without ever reading the book. They're asking for the location of something that's lost or been misplaced without ever having looked for the item themselves. We've all experienced that, have we? where we've been asked to find something or, or we're looking for something ourselves and the person that asks us to find it or we ask without really looking? I mean, that happens in our house sometimes, not very often though. Um, but I know as a parent, a spouse, as a coworker, as everything. I mean, we've all done these things. We've all been on both sides of the situation. We are like, in some ways, the Pharisees, where we want all the answers without, want, without having to do the work. 
And so when the Pharisees and the legal experts ask Jesus to provide them a sign, he says, the sign you're looking for has already come. Because everything that Jesus does in his ministry, every healing, every miracle, every time he opens his mouth, every time he shares a message of grace or of God's kingdom, is he not providing them a sign of, of, what he, of who he is as the Son of God? What he's saying is, you don't need to ask for a sign because you see me. But here's the problem. As the Pharisees and the legal experts and those who oppose the ministry of Jesus they were looking for a Messiah who fit into their box. They're wanting for one that, that fits cleanly in their box. They're looking for the Messiah who, who doesn't challenge them to live differently. They're looking for the Messiah who doesn't require them to give anything up or to change their ways. They're looking for a Messiah that doesn't call them to change their behavior. They're looking for Jesus who supports their agenda, who supports their preferences, and in short, they want the Messiah who doesn't require anything of them. So instead of looking at Jesus, of evaluating his ministry, of prayerfully discerning what he's doing, they just ask for a sign. And then Jesus says, you've got it. For as in Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three, nights, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. See, they've blinded themselves. They've blinded themselves with, at the possibility of who Jesus is and of who Jesus should mean to them. What if they realize who Jesus is and it's too late? The sign's before them. And so what Jesus is saying is the question is whether or not you recognize that I am the sign. Will the Pharisees hear the message of hope and of grace and of forgiveness and of God's kingdom? Or will they miss it altogether? Because he says, look at yourselves. The people of Nineveh <clears throat> are going to stand in judgment to the people that were listening to Jesus. He says the people of Nineveh who were considered pagans, you know, they were considered unclean. They, they heard the message of Jonah and they repented. They turned from their sins, they oriented themselves to God and they were saved. And then Jesus says, he goes even further by saying, the queen of the south, who was the queen of Sheba, came and she will rise and, and stand with, with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now one greater than Solomon is here. All right, so Jesus is using Sheba, who's a Gentile, or a pagan, you know, not Jewish. He's using the Ninevites, who are also pagans, to, to point to the Pharisees and say, if, if these people could respond to the work of God in their midst through the message of a prophet and through the message of a king, how in the world can you all not respond to the very Messiah who's in your midst? Because his actions, Jesus's, are greater than, than any wisdom Solomon could have shared that any word that Jonah could have shared to Nineveh. But all he did, I mean, but the Pharisees didn't hear it, did they? Because they were so blinded by what Jesus is saying in comparing them to these Gentile pagans. Especially when he says, 
that they're going to be on the wrong side on the judgment day. Friends, I think the challenge for us is to read this scripture for ourselves and maybe ask how we are like Pharisees and teachers of the law in the way that we attempt to fit Jesus into our own box. We're all liable to do so. I don't think there's anyone here who would not see or not say that that there is something that, that we certainly want Jesus to be in our box. Because we don't always want to change. We don't want to give up the authority in our lives or or make the sacrifice that we know that is really required of us to be a disciple. And so what we do is we emphasize the parts of Jesus and his message that, that speak to us or resonate with us while setting aside the parts of Jesus that we know are more difficult or more challenging or require a greater sacrifice. See, we want to put Jesus in the box. And so for some extremes of that could be, you know, um, where we only focus on certain parts of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Like if we only focus on the scriptures where Jesus talks about loving others, then we focus on, on how Jesus is God's love exemplified for us, which is fully important and we have to do that. But the danger in doing that is we only end up talking about God's love and we don't ever hear or, or importantly focus on where God invites us to do more or to repent, or to set aside those things that hold us back to truly be in relationship with Him. Maybe the opposite of that would be to only focus on where uh, God calls us to repent, where Jesus calls us to repent. In the extreme, when we focus only on that, what does it become? It becomes a legalistic religion that only focuses on the rules and on what we're supposed to do. That's not loving. When we attempt to fit Jesus in the box, we find ourselves straddling and find ourselves where we're not fully living into the gospel that God has given us through his son Jesus Christ because here's what we want we all want the full benefit of being a follower of Jesus which means setting aside the things that that pull us back and that hold us back and that keep us from truly being in relationship with one another which means uh, being accountable to, to the scripture and what we know that God tells us we are to be and who we're to be and how we're to be a community of faith. But it also means living fully into who God wants us to be as we discern for ourselves the path that he's taking on, us on that doesn't lead us away from him. See, if there's a path that you end up on that's leading you away from God, I'd be willing to say it's not a path that God has put you on. Because I don't believe that God puts anything in the scripture that takes us further from him. The scripture is inspired by God to bring us closer to him, is it not? To help us to discover him. John Wesley himself said, the scripture contains in the Old and New Testaments everything that you and I need for our salvation. So friends, what we have to do is declare who we are and declare what we are and to believe in Jesus who is truth in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Amen.